Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. When he is saying, I am the bread of life, he who eats of me and drinks of my blood, what happens is I'm going to satisfy you. Now, those of you that are hearing me say that for the first time, I'm just giving you what Jesus said, eats of my body and drinks of my flesh. It doesn't mean that he's teaching cannibalism. If you stay with me, I'm going to explain that even in more detail. And we're not talking about convoluting communion and actually turning the wafers and the juice into the blood and the body of Christ. We're not saying that either. What he is saying is this. When you partake of me, I will satisfy your needs. Now, I know that some of you have had the beautiful opportunity to look at our gorgeous ocean and take wonderful snapshots of our sunset. Some of you have even seen that little green flash at the end. I haven't had that privilege to do that. By then, I'm so blinded by the sun, I don't see anything. But some of you have seen that. What you would say to someone is you'd say, isn't this beautiful just to, watch this, drink in this beautiful scenery. Well, you're not drinking the sun, you're not drinking the sunset, you're not drinking the ocean, but you're drinking and you're partaking of all of that. It's becoming a part of you. So when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, and we partake of him, when we eat of him, we drink of him, we're saying, we are experiencing, we are receiving all of you. Now to do that, it's kind of important to know how Jesus satisfies our needs and how he doesn't do that. So how does Jesus satisfy our needs? It's not by us saying, I will satisfy my own needs. There are a lot of people today that says, if I just do this, my needs will be met. It might be good for me to divide our needs into two basic categories. One category is going to be the physical world, which would be food and relationships and people and all of that. The other is going to be the unseen world, which would be the spiritual world. Yes, there are times we can do and work real hard and we'll make the money to be able to put bread on the table so our physical needs might be met. But Jesus isn't talking about physical needs here. He's talking about spiritual needs. He's talking about that inner need that we all have. I'm reminded of the story of Rockefeller one time when he was so rich, they asked him, how much more money do you really need to make in order to feel more satisfied? And he says, just a little bit more. Well, that happens to all of us. If I just had more money, more raise, a little bit better this, bigger house, whatever, I might feel more satisfied. And all of us know that it's like chasing this elusive butterfly that we never really grab a hold of. And if we do, it's not enough. We have to have more. So I will will not meet our needs. The second one is not going to be I should. There are some people that are saying, if I just made this list up here, I, I, I just get this list here, I, I, I could have my needs met. So all of a sudden it's, I should, I should, I should, I should. And we have this list of unrealistic expectations before us that ends up with putting us on a guilt trip because we can't reach these expectations of things. And some of you might be now at a stage in your life and you look back and you say, I should have done this and I should have done that. And we swim around in a world of total regret and guilt and we never experience the intimacy of Christ that says, no matter what you've done wrong in the past, I can restore unto you the years that the locusts have eaten on the inside out if you'll just eat of me and I'll give you a do-over. So it's not I will or I should. Or a third one would be, well, they should. Some people say, you know, my needs would have been met if they would have done something in my life. And usually it's their parents. They should have sent me to a better school and they should have treated me better and they should have treated one another better. They should have done this and they should have done that. And all of a sudden we live in a blame game world where that we're now saying our needs aren't met because it's someone else's fault. We always feel then that we're failures. And God says, yes, you're right. There are people that maybe could have done and should have done and would have done more for you. But he says, I will still meet your need. So we have the I will, 
They should. I should have. And there's a fourth one here, and that's we should do it. In other words, if we all get together, we could meet our needs. Well, we might be able to do that. Maybe some of you are going through a hard time. We all get together. We might be able to help fix your car or paint your house or take care of some specific earthly need that you have. You know, we should do that. But even after we've done all of that, it still will not meet that inner need that you have, intimacy with the Lord, and nor none of that will ever get us into heaven. So even if we should all get together to help you, we can take care of physical needs, but the greatest need you have, we can't help you other than to point you to Jesus Christ. But here's the fifth one. The only one who can meet our needs is Jesus Christ. And he says seven times in seven illustrations, I am, I am, I am. So he says, if you need direction, I'm your shepherd that will guide you. If you feel like you're dying inside and things aren't going well, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, now, if you are a person who feels lonely, he says, I will be there for you. I want you to know the Lord is the door. And he says, if you just come to me, I'll receive you into myself. And so again, every need that you have that results in a spiritual need, he can meet that need. So think about it for just a moment. Have you put Jesus Christ first in your life? I don't know. I I hope you have, and I hope that you will. Now, some of you might be saying this to yourself right now. You might be saying, you know, I've done the best that I could, but I don't know that I'm going to last. I've gone through so much. There's been, you don't know, wave after wave of conflict. Every time I think something's going to happen good, the, the harder I go forward, the behinder I get. This message is for you. Because no matter how difficult life might be, I want you to know you are never, ever, ever alone in this world. You have Jesus Christ, at least available to you if you'll take him. And then some of you, you might be at the point that you're saying, okay, don't worry about me, pastor. I'm going to last. I'm going to be okay. I read a book recently about a pastor who is teaching others about how to live their Christian life and he was giving his autobiography later in life and he was talking about how that he was asked a question if you would ever fall and not finish the race well would it be in the area of moral impurity he said out of all the areas that I could fail in that would be the least area that I would ever fall in is moral impurity and he was writing that book because he had then fallen into moral impurity and how broken he was because of it And it's talking about reordering his broken world and putting it back together again. So maybe some of you are saying, hey, I'm going to finish. Don't worry about me, Pastor. Give me another message. This is kind of redundant. I already know this stuff. You need this probably more than anyone because the moment we say, I won't fall, we ought to take heed lest we do fall because now we have pride and we know what the Lord does with our pride. He breaks us down so much to realize that I can't, he can, therefore we will. So it's not about me, it's all about him. So this message is good for all of us, wherever we might be, to the point of saying, Jesus, you are the bread of life, and I'm going to come to you. I'm going to show you five different responses to him, even though he's the bread of life. I'm going to show you five different groups of people and how they responded. In all of this, there's only going to be one right answer, one right response, and one right person in the group. And I'm wondering if you're going to have the right response and be the right person in the group to do that. Well, let's begin here. Who didn't? grow a lasting faith. If you will, let's follow along now as I begin to read to you here. Verse 59 says, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So he's talking all about him being the bread of life and partake of him and you'll have everlasting life. You have to believe and you'll never hunger again, never thirst again. He was giving it to a whole group of people then and he was in the synagogue speaking mostly to the Jews specifically. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? 
Well, first of all, we need to decide what are disciples. Now, those of you that are new in your journey, when you see the word disciples in Scripture, sometimes as you look through it, you're going to not understand what group of people is he speaking to. Sometimes he refers to the disciples as the apostles. Those would be the 12, those 12 buddies that he called into ministry with him. And of course, we know out of the 12, one was a rummy, Judas, etc. He sometimes refers to those as his disciples. Other times in scripture, he refers to disciples as anyone who would do the following three things. They'd be followers, but they do the following three. It's coming from the Greek word, methoteo, which means learner, pupil, or student. So anybody who is out there who wanted to learn about Christ or be a student of Christ or be a pupil of Christ can be a disciple. Now that sounds real good because when we hear that, we think a student or a pupil is an automatic committed person to the mentor or the teacher. That's not the case in Scripture. Some disciples were. They followed him further. Some did not, and I'll explain that in a moment. But in this context, the disciple was anybody who heard about Christ, who wanted to know more about Christ, so then they became a student of Christ, but not a fully devoted follower of Christ by faith alone and then surrendering to his lordship. It was anybody who wanted to learn more about him. Here would be a good illustration. You could go to a secular university, and in that secular university, they might teach, maybe liberal arts, a course called comparative religion. And in that class, they're going to teach about Jesus Christ. So you come, and you're going to be a pupil of Jesus Christ. So you're mostly one who's gathering information, maybe to decide whether or not you're going to embrace him later on, or maybe someone who wants to know more information of why you never will embrace him. But you're still a student learning information. That's one group. We'll talk about that more specifically here in a moment. The third group is a disciple, where Jesus now is talking to that same group of disciples that are kind of wishy-washy, a shallow faith, just an investigative faith. He now says to them, if you want to be my disciple, in other words, he's really defining what a biblical Christ-like disciple is. He says, if you do these things, you will be my disciple. If you do not do these things, you cannot be my disciple, which I thought was very interesting. As you went through all the passages in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them don't have any gray area. Either do it or you don't, and therefore, you're a disciple. So again, three disciples. One, coming in just to listen to them. The other is learning to be a disciple, a real follower of Christ, and they're willing to pay the price of commitment to do that. And then the third one would be that small select group we'll call the 12, that later on we'll refer to as the apostles. Now, who didn't grow their faith? Who did not end well? Go back to the passage. Verse 60 says, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, all about him being the the wonderful bread of life, that was a very difficult statement. And they said, Who can listen to this? If you will, you could drop down for just a moment and look at verse 66. It says, As a result of this, many of his disciples, they didn't just ask questions any longer, they withdrew and were not walking with them any longer. And I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But I want you to know these were disciples that were basically on the edge. So what makes it very hard for them to be able to listen? What made it so difficult? Well, the word difficult here doesn't mean that it was incomprehensible. It didn't mean that they couldn't understand what Jesus was saying. It was like, I don't want to do what Jesus says. So it was difficult to hear it and then to do it. You know, I could um, be on talk show, and I've been on some on television, and some of them have been pretty challenging. And they would ask me a question about my Christian values, and I really don't like to go on secular television when I have a secular host and I have a secular audience and they want to have my biblical opinion on things. I do it. I don't do it often, thankfully. 
I do it because I need to speak for Christ no matter what the audience would be because it's God's word going out and God knows who will be saved and who won't. But my point still being is this. I don't like doing it because usually the host doesn't know Christ. He's not asking me as a student and a learner to accept what we're saying from Scripture. He's trying to find a way to be able to twist what I say to denigrate what I believe or in whom I believe, which would be Christ, and the same way with the audience. It's very difficult for them to do that. Why do you think the world has such a difficult time when you and I as a Christian will say, we take a stand for the sanctity of life. They all go, <gasps> and they throw everything at us in the kitchen sink to show us how, how ignorant that statement is. Or if we talk about the sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman, and we show them from Old Testament as it was begun, all the way to the teachings of Jesus, and how they cannot accept that, and they throw everything at us, including the kitchen sink again. Well, for one reason is they don't know the things of God because they're not saved. And the other is because even if they did know it, watch this, they don't want to embrace it because often it will cause them to have to make choices in their own life that then would cause them to have repercussions with other people that they enjoy or like or respect in their life, which now means that they are taking the respect or the approval of others and putting them above the approval of God and what God has to say. So that's why statements like this can be very difficult for those who do not want it. Now, you're scratching your head. Some of you say, why would they do that about Jesus? Wouldn't everybody want Jesus, the bread of life? Watch this very carefully. It is true those disciples chased Jesus from one end of the lake of Galilee to the other end of the lake, and we studied that already. They went everywhere, everywhere to find Jesus. They didn't want Jesus to be God. What they were looking for for Jesus was to do three things. Do another miracle. In other words, we've got to see something really exciting. We're going to come for all the excitement but they don't want to embrace Jesus. A lot of times people go to churches and some pastors and church leaders are trying to make churches to be so exciting that they think if I just do more exciting things, people will come. Yeah, you can draw a crowd. I read an article about this one pastor who developed a stage that would go up and down and that when he came to a special point, the stage would just jerk him up real high. There'd be special light show that would happen, laser beams and smoke that would happen when he made his final point as a crescendo. I thought, that is really cool. You know, it's like a, that's like a carnival ride. But now as a pastor, now you have to ask yourself this question. If they like that this week, I have to beat that next week with something else. And your whole world is trying to do that. So they were chasing Jesus for all the miracles. He healed the boy. He healed the man. He fed the 5,000. The second is they were chasing him for the meals that they got. Who wouldn't want to do that? There are a lot of people on this island that will chase every do-gooder organization and churches to get a meal out of them because... They need a meal, that's true, but that's just the flesh part of their life. That's the physical. We all ought to be doing that. But the highest calling, Jesus said, is the spiritual part where they need to embrace Jesus Christ as the Lord who died on the cross and rose again and has a plan for their life according to Scripture and then to surrender to the Word as a believer in Christ. No, they just want the meal. And then the same group of people didn't just want miracles and meals, but they wanted to make him king in Jerusalem, so that he then would be the ruler to set everything right against Rome, so that they would have complete freedom to be the Jews that they wanted to be. Again, it was all about temporal needs. And so, again, Jesus can provide for your needs, and I, I'm so grateful that he does. He has for me. He's had for you, others. But remember, if all we're chasing after is, please answer this prayer about this. Give me a job. Give me more food. Give me a, a maid or something. I don't want to make less of that. But I don't want to put that above what he really wants to do is to satisfy your soul so that when you lose a job, you still have joy. When you lose your health, you still have joy. When a relationship is broken, you can still have inner joy because that's the inside. 
that he satisfies. So there's nothing hard with his teaching. It was their hearts that were hard. So let me ask you, how's your heart now? Do you have a hard heart, a half a heart, or a whole heart that you're saying, all right, Lord, your sayings are difficult. I know that they're rough, they're tough, but Lord, I know that they're right, and I know that they will give me the fullness of joy forevermore, and when I take of that truth, I will never hunger again. That's what he's really saying in this passage. So what made it hard? Well, we put it for you there in your study notes. They were settling for less than what he demands. In other words, they they said, all right, you want to do that, Lord? We want to do this, so we begin to bargain with God. How many of you and I, at times in our life, that we will bargain with God? Lord, if you just do this, I'll do that. If you just do that, I'll do this. If you just do this, you'll do that. How many times we bargain with God and it just doesn't work? Or how about this one? We think that God's laws are just so, so tough that we, we don't want to do what he says because he's going to ask us to do more than we're able to do. I think sometimes some of us don't give ourselves totally to the Lord because we look at this book. Young people, I want you to listen very carefully now. We look at this book right here. for whatever. I don't know where we got this idea as young people. We get this idea that this book here is a book that's designed to take away our fun, that it is a rule book for life. And if I do this book, all the happiness, all the joy, anything in my life that would bring me some degree of, of success, it'll be ruined and destroyed if I follow this book. Let me tell you something. That is a lie from the pit of hell. This book is not a book that's going to confine you to legalism and to bondage. This book right here is a book to unlock you so that you could reach your greatest potential. This book is not to help you to survive. This book is to help you to thrive. So this book is not a book that's hard. In fact, every commandment, every principle that God expects us and commands us to do comes with his enablement. So his commandments come with his enablements. Listen to this. And he always gives us more ability to do what he wants us to do than we even need to have. It'd be like, um, how can I say this? We have a little match burning over here. And God says, I want you to put that match out and I'm going to give you the Pacific Ocean to do it. So in other words, he gives you more power, more ability than what he's asking you to do so that you could do it. So this book is not a hard book. It's an easy book. When we drink of Jesus Christ, we eat the bread of life and we make him first in our life as our personal savior and then our Lord. How important that is. Well, there are five groups of people in chapter six alone. If you will, look at the list I've given to you in your study notes because I'm going to ask you, are you in any one of this list? First of all, he had the general crowd. That would be anybody, Jew and Gentile, any ism and spasm of person that's out there. Chapter 6, verse 2 talks about that group. Maybe you're there. Maybe you're not a part of any particular religious group of people. You're just kind of lost in the sauce of humanity. Okay, that's your group. In chapter 6, verse 41, he talks about the Jewish leaders, and they're kind of salt and pepper through the entire chapter. Maybe you're not Jewish specifically, but maybe you're, you're religious, and you're a religious leader. You kind of like think you have your biblical act together about the Bible, and you might, and I'm grateful that you've studied the Word, but yet you have not fully taken Jesus Christ alone as your Savior. It's not sola fide yet with you. So you're a religious leader. You're close, but not there yet. And maybe you're a disciple, and the disciples we've already defined. You're one of those that you have kind of a, a shallow faith. You've been following Christ because you see a lot of the neat things to do. Your friends are in Christ. It seems like it's right. You heard about that. You don't want to miss it yet. But at the same time, you have not fully committed to Jesus Christ. He's become some magic person in your life, some special person, and he's done a lot of neat things. And it's kind of exciting to see what Christians do. And by the way, it seems like Christian people are better mates, you know. And so I just kind of like what Christianity gives to them. So you're kind of a disciple. Maybe you're part of the 12. The 12 would be those that have come to faith alone in Jesus Christ. 
and yet you've not fully surrendered to his lordship, but you're getting real close there. You kind of see little glimpse and pieces of why he should be now the lord of your life. So you're kind of following him and you're up close. You have a deeper faith. And then I put the one in there. And the reason I put to the one, what would be that person? I'm gonna, I put my name there. Is that you, Stan? Put your name. Is that you? Am I just a part of the crowd? Am I just a religious leader? Am I a disciple that wants to be a learner but not fully a follower? Am I someone here that I'm, I'm close to making him the Lord of my life, but I might abandon him when the chips are down, right when he's being crucified, when I'm having to go through persecution? Will I bail on him then? Or will I be that one that says, Lord, though you slay me, yet will I trust in you? Did you catch that? Where will you be? It's always neat to be uh, a Christian when everything is going well, but it's tough to be a Christian when all hell breaks loose in your life. And as soon as that happens, you wake up and it hits you again the next day. And then for you to say, you know what? I don't care what God does on the outside. I have heaven as my home and I have Jesus who's going with me through this. And he is everything to me. Well, let me give you five different responses again. Again, this is a review for the chapter. Do your own study. There are five different responses. The first one would be the seekers. Those are the ones who kind of had a felt need and they wanted to go to it and wanted to be a part of it because they were seeking something. And by the way, I don't think that's necessarily wrong to be a seeker. Let me pause for a moment and hammer this truth home. I am so glad that we have our No Fright Kids Night. I am so glad that we're making plans for our special, beautiful night of delights here right before Christmas where this place is turned into a beautiful, wonderful Christmas showcase for you to bring your friends. But I want you to know that's because they may be seeking something. And it may be a felt need. When we arrived on Friday... We stopped our paper, but Friday the paper came, and I mowed the yard. I'm getting tired. I'm kind of really just vegging. So I got the paper, and I got this section of the paper, and I wanted to find out what are all the other groups on the island doing for children on Halloween. And so I'm looking, and I'm looking for ours, and I'm going through all of it, and everything is this goblin, this you know, spook, this, that, and the other. And then I see ours, a little no picture, no nothing, a little thing in there that says, no fright kids night. And then we go through all the others through this thing. And I'm thinking, okay, as a parent, I could probably be a parent, even if I wasn't saved, that would say, I don't want my kids up all night with nightmares. I don't want them to buy into that violence out there. I don't want them to have this belief in some kind of a negative energy source that's out there. Is there something where my kids can have a slam bang wonderful night? No fright kids night. And so I'm seeking something. I wasn't seeking God. I wasn't seeking Christ. It's in a church. How bad can that be? So I'll go to this church. So I'm seeking, watch this, for a felt need. So having a felt need is not wrong. The problem is most churches think, if I just parade all the solutions to the felt needs, I'm going to reach people. All that is is bringing them to the water, but that doesn't cause them to drink. So you can have all the salt in their oats that you want. But if you do not have water for them to drink, and that water is crystal clear and it's authentic, genuine water, and it's made simple for them to be able to drink, and the purpose of that event and the salt that you put all out there is for them to drink, you've wasted all the money, you've wasted all the time, God gets very little or no glory out of that, and you have a self-satisfied position that I've accomplished something. And so what I'm telling you, being a seeker is something that God wants us to be. Now we take that one step further, like we do here. Everybody who comes through that door or the gate is going to get a gospel track. Everybody who goes through one of our booths is going to hear a clear presentation of the gospel. It's all about the water. It's all about the bread. 
Now that being said, the next response could be murmuring. In verse 41 and 43, it said they murmured. Now, that's what I put here. The, the word they have in my Bible is the word grumble. Grumble, 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 murmur, murmur, murmur. So after you seek, and a lot of people do, oh, I came to know for a kid tonight. It wasn't so good after all. They didn't have the best candy there. I didn't like on there. The lines were too long. They didn't have it covered. I just didn't. There's just too many. I couldn't find a thing to park. You know, it's good windy outside. My popcorn was dry, you know. And so they grumble, grumble, grumble. They came as a seeker, then they grumbled. Then they moved to the next level. Now they're arguing. That's the word striving there in verse 52. They're arguing amongst themselves about it. Now they're telling everybody how bad it is. That's the response to Jesus' teaching on the bread. Number four, then they did what we just studied. They're departing. They're leaving it. They're abandoning Christ. And the last part of it is they confessed Christ. So watch this, folks. I just gave you five groups of people, and I asked you, which one are you? Are you going to be the last one? I'm going to say, that's me. And now I gave you five responses. Have you moved from a seeker? but you've turned into a grumbler and you've moved now to someone who is antagonistic and contending. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Thank you.